yeah, I've definitely heard of athletes at 18 years old being diagnosed with osteoporosis and it can essentially be put down to the fact that they were underfueling. Other athletes told that they wouldn't be able to have children, but yeah, to think that someone who, you know, most people would see as being fit and healthy and, and ideal um, could actually have this diagnosed disease. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Steph Gaskell. I'm an accredited sports dietitian and researcher and do some lecturing at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined by my colleague and fellow sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher who I now call Dr. Al. How are you, Alan? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Steph. It's been a long weekend here in Melbourne and gorgeous weather, just amazing weather, Monday, Tuesday in particular. I'm glad um, you said Monday, Tuesday in particular because today, not so gorgeous. But it wasn't the long weekend today. That was over. It was back to work. So yeah, actually got down to the beach a couple of times, which was nice. Uh, it's starting to enjoy the, the unlockdownness. Yeah. Although that said, for those of us who've got uh, kids under the age of 12, we're still vigilant. There's kids left, right and centre going down with COVID and schools opening and shutting and mm-hmm. childcare is opening and shutting and people isolating and mm-hmm. all those sort of fun and games. So many, we've managed to avoid the circus a little bit so far, mm-hmm. uh, but I think unfortunately it's going to be only a matter of time. But, you know, what can you do? Yeah, yeah. How about you? Did you make the most of the long weekend? I sure did. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, loving the loving the hot weather. So, yeah, got out and about and um, and enjoyed it. Uh, so, yeah, I was just, I was also just thinking on Friday how that, like, it's funny, isn't it? How when power goes out, you just think everything just stops. Mm. And, and like, it's like no work can be done. There's yep. no power. There's like. Yes. <laughs> So just for the listeners who aren't in Melbourne, uh, we had a big storm come through on Friday, as I think they did most yeah. of the way up the east coast of Australia, actually. I think in... Queensland and New South Wales copped it as well. Yeah. Um, we had trees down everywhere and power going off in certain parts of, of town, so obviously it affected you. Yeah, and um, my sister in Adelaide, they had a massive, massive, massive amount of hail because her car is potentially going to be classified as a write-off. She had wow. that much hail damage. Yeah, right. So, yeah, it's funny. Mm. Yeah, and then 30 degrees and beautiful warm weather on Tuesday. This is Melbourne. This is yep. Melbourne. And then raining all day Wednesday. Yep. <laughs> like to mix it up. Yep, like to mix exactly it up. right. Mm. All right. So here at the Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask uh, it's the stuff you talk about in your training sessions or post-training sessions at the cafe. And what we like to do is we like to break it down, um, invite a, a guest um, researcher or, um, or sports dietitian expert um, uh, to break that down for us. And then that's part A. And then we'll have part B, which is going to usually be an athlete or a coach um, providing the kind of um, practical um, experience of, of it all. Um, and so today's episode is Alan. Yeah, it's episode 24A today, Steph. Uh, and our question is, can I underfuel my training? 
And we're joined to answer that question today by someone who's been actively researching in that area uh, and just wrapping up her PhD thesis on the topic, Margot Rogers. So yeah, we'll hear from Margot very shortly uh, and some of the great work she's been doing uh, around this topic of fueling for training and what happens if you underfuel. And uh, we have a very special one lined up for our 50th, which is coming up in only a few weeks. Um, yeah. what, what kind of hint do you think we can give our listeners to this one? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, I, think it, I think people will really enjoy it. It's a little bit of a departure from our usual question-based episodes, although that there still is a sort of a question around it. Mm. Um, but it'll look, I guess, more at uh, an incredible athletic feat, mm. I think we can say. Yep. Uh, I think we said that last week. Mm. Um, but we'll also talk about, I guess, what we can learn from that and what you know those of us who aren't that incredibly athletically talented at that world level um, can learn from that experience as well and take away from it into their own running cycling and triathlons. so uh, I think we'll leave it at that for now Steph but yeah very excited about this one um, been doing some research this week to prepare for it um, much more than normal and um, yeah looking looking forward to bring that to everyone to celebrate our 50th episode in three weeks time Woohoo! can't wait mm. And that'll almost coincide exactly with the one-year anniversary of episode number one, eh? Far out. It's been that long, hey? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we also have some social media shout-outs this week, Steph. I think it's fair to say that last week's episode with Izzy Bat Doyle was extremely popular. I think that topic of, you know, is Lena better or you know does lighter equal faster um, really resonated with a lot of people mm. um, both Gary Slater's episode the week before that and then Izzy's episode and, and her practical experience so we've had a few people sort of give us feedback around that um, like Georgia who contacted us on Facebook yeah yeah um, so Georgia um, I had the pleasure of um, running with down in Adelaide when we were both based there um, and yeah, she, she found the, the topic, um, really, really helpful because I think just, um, you know, and I've gotten this feedback from a lot of, um, runners, friends, people I work with, um, just, you know, um, many of us have, um, perhaps in, in the past or present experienced, um, struggles with, um, that kind of message. Do I need to be leaner to, to run to run better um and and some of us unfortunately have experienced some of the i guess negative consequences of perhaps sometimes taking that a bit too far um where stress fractures um you know could be could be a, a side effect of that for for many of us um and um and hopefully you know we can try and um start to kind of try and listen to our body a bit more and, and make sure that we're ensuring we, we do give ourselves um, sufficient fuel and, and try and think about fueling ourselves to have a, have a strong body rather than having an undernourished um, uh, body that's at, that then, you know, is, is putting ourselves at risk of, of lots of things, which we'll hear in, um, in this topic. Um, and uh, we also had um, some other social, um, oh, we also had a question as well from Georgia, which we, uh, that was kind of talking about um, exercising in the heat and humidity. 
Um, and so we did have an episode with Ollie J on that very topic and Jessica Stenson. So that, that was episode 5A and 5B about how do I best cope with training and racing in the heat. Um, but Alan, we were chatting and, and we might perhaps down the track do um, do another session perhaps on um, particular kind of types of strategies that we perhaps can use in a bit more detail um, yeah, um, down the track. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that session with Ollie, he sort of went into, I guess, the, some of the theoretical bits behind, you know, thermoregulation and how our body um, manages temperature and, and that side of things. We talked a little bit about some of the practical strategies, but you're right, I think we we can probably do another episode delving into those practical strategies in a little bit more detail. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, and then Instagram um, shout-outs. We had the lovely Shane Hutton again um, commenting that he's looking forward to um, to this one and um and Ryan Shant, who enjoyed um, Izzy's podcast as well. So, um, yeah, we're really stoked that, that everyone has found um, these podcasts um, useful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in addition to social media, obviously there's the various podcast platforms that the podcast is available on, the main ones being um, Apple Podcasts, of course, Google Podcasts, Spotify and Podbean, etc. And we had two new five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts, so mm. they're obviously anonymous. So thank you to whoever left those for us. Um, they certainly uh, helped get the message out about the podcast. Uh, we also had a new review on Apple Podcasts from uh, the person who identified as All Things Endurance Nutrition, who I think is Erin, uh, who also contacted us on Facebook this week as well with a very similar comment, which is why I think it's the same person. Uh, and Erin said, great work and thank you for your podcast. It's a fantastic resource for athletes, sports, dietitians and anyone working in the sport. Love your clear explanations, real-life examples of sports nutrition in practice. It's wonderful to direct clients to the long munch for the detail we don't always have time for in appointments. So Erin is a, a sports dietitian over in your hometown of Adelaide. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to add that in there for you, Steph. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, with her business, Ultra Appetites, which I'm always jealous. It's a really cool name. It is a cool name. Um, and just saying that she'd learn a lot from, from the podcast uh, and she appreciates our generosity in sharing it all. Yeah, that's lovely. So that was really good. Yeah, thank you, Erin. And Erin's been a fantastic participant of um, yours too, Alan. Yeah, yeah, in our five-hour study, mm -hmm. which is always a, a bit of a slog, but, yeah, she, she got involved with that one. So thank you, Erin. Mm -hmm. And also a, uh, another shout-out we thought we'd give now is actually for another podcast. Um, a fellow sports dietitian of ours, Liz Broad, um, some of you will know Liz. Uh, she's sort of specialised in... Um, para sports over the last decade or so, uh, worked at the Australian Institute of Sport for a long time, moved over to the US and worked for the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee for a long time, uh, has since moved back to Australia, but not before um, helping out um, Team USA over at the Paralympics in Tokyo. And she's actually launched a new podcast called Para Sports Nutrition where she tackles a whole bunch of topics that are specific to, to parasports. So if you're a, a dietitian, maybe listening, a practitioner, uh, or someone who supports, works with, is a parent of, uh, or is a para-athlete themselves, then, um, yeah, definitely recommend you go and check that out. You can get that on, um, again, most of the main podcast platforms, Podbean, etc. Uh, and then having a look at, I guess, what she's done so far. She's got episodes around protein needs. She's got um, nutrition for wheelchair racing, um, wheelchair rugby player, uh, Liz Dunn, who is also um, a 
dietitian herself, but a member of the, the American National Wheelchair Rugby Team. Uh, also, Joe Merchant, who again is also a sports dietitian at the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, talking about multiple sclerosis. Um, so there's some really great episodes starting to come together there for Liz. Uh, and if you're interested in para sports, obviously we had a couple of episodes a while back around the time of the Paralympics with Alistair Donahoe and David Bryan. Uh, but if you're interested in, I guess, more the specifics of you know um, wheelchair athletes or some of those other impairments, then yeah, definitely recommend you check out para sports nutrition. Yeah, and Liz is great. She's also really practical too so there'd be some really good pearls of wisdom in in that those um yeah chats. absolutely and she literally wrote the textbook mm. on nutrition for para sports mm-hmm. um i think it is called para sports nutrition that's the textbook yeah uh, that she published a few years ago i think it's in it might even be in its second edition now yeah yeah, so if you uh, have any particular questions that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can get in touch with us as Erin uh, and Shane and Ryan and um, Georgia have on um, either Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at The Long Munch for all of those. Uh, feel free to suggest any particular questions or topics uh, that you'd like answered on the podcast or just give us some feedback, good, bad or otherwise. We're always keen to, to take that on board, learn and, and grow and improve the podcast. Okay, it's that time again, Steph, where one of us is usually a bit hot under the collar about a particular topic. Now, in this case, I can see the look in your face and your eyes that you're the one a bit more hot under the collar than me about this one. So I'm going to pass it over to you and you can tell us what's what's uh, on your mind. So what's on my mind is I think a bit of a perhaps a, a myth um, that's gone around for a long time that we've been chatting about, um, Alan, um, and that's how um, we can think um, female athletes um, sometimes um, maybe given the impression that um, if we lose our, our period, um, menstruation, um, that that's a possible sign that we must be, you know, training really good, training hard. Um, or we also are kind of like, oh, that's cool. I don't have my period. Convenience. Um, and, yeah, convenience and, um, and, and either don't think too much about it or can't be bothered in a way, um, whereas it, it can actually be a, a – possible sign of um you know we're actually not giving our body enough energy and nourishment um for it to be able to carry out its um basic sort of um day-to-day um essential things that it needs to do um because it's it's struggling um on the on the limited energy that we're giving it um and then also sometimes you know I remember when I was um younger and um and uh in that sort of uh stage um that yeah I saw a practitioner and unfortunately was um just you know kind of given a contraceptive um pill to kind of help encourage it um and kind of then that sort of missed the underlying issue that that was happening um so hopefully um out of out of this uh episode um, and the episodes that we've had, um, we can get that message across that, you know, not having your period is is 
not a good sign and it, it should be looked into to, to work out what is the actual underlying cause and then how can um, you best tackle that and, um, and, and try and get that, um, that back. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you know, adding a hormonal contraceptive pill to the mix uh, is essentially kind of putting a band-aid over the problem, um, trying to mask it, but it's the underlying issue is still there and the consequences mm. of the underlying issue, as we'll hear from Margot shortly, is still there as well. Mm. Yep. Yep. There you go. That was pretty tame. Yeah, pretty tame. <laughs> But uh, you do look a bit more relaxed now, i got to say, <laughs> getting that I'm off your chest. I'm pretty chilled now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Feeling good. Right. Feeling good. Excellent. So I think it's about time that we should introduce the, the lovely Margot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, Margot Rogers is our guest tonight. Um, and Margot did her undergraduate and honours nutrition and dietetics degree at Monash University where we both work. Um, she actually did that before we both arrived there. So we just missed, mm -hmm. missed each other. I think I started the year after she had finished. Um, so I sort of knew of her, but had never met her there at Monash. Um, but then from there, she went and did some work at the Australian Institute of Sport and then commenced a PhD with the University of Canberra in conjunction with the Australian Institute of Sport looking at the topic that we're talking about tonight in terms of underfueling uh, in elite athletes, in, in the case of her PhD, elite female athletes, uh, but we'll talk about male athletes as well um, because there are some very um, similar issues and a lot of overlap in terms of the issues that we're going to be talking about. Um, but she did some really cool research um, right at the start of her PhD looking at some of the, the different consequences of underfueling and how common those different consequences were in, in groups of athletes. So um, thinking back to that, I thought, oh, she'd be the perfect person to come and talk to us tonight uh, about that work uh, and then some of the other work that she's done since then uh, and also around this topic of um, adequate or, or uh, inadequate fueling as well. So, yeah, often when we're in the that phase where people are going, oh, well, if I eat a little bit less, as long as I'm still training, well, all's hunky-dory and then, you know, I might be losing a bit of weight and there's a bonus. Um, but as we're here tonight, uh, can you underfuel your training? Yes, you can. Um, and we'll hear about what the problem potentially with that is. Yeah, and I think it's also a good one for because um, we had uh, the episode with Sam um, MP, um, you know, talking and covering a bit about that um, carbohydrate availability and, and potentially training a bit lower. Um, and I think sometimes that message um, for athletes and or coaches can get um, perhaps misinterpreted or just um, overused without thinking of the potential consequences as well. Yep. Um, so hopefully this will also add further insight into that um, so that if anyone, you know, is undertaking those types of sessions, they um, are have, having an understanding of, well, what is, you know, some other possible things that we need to keep a, an eye on. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So that was back in episode 2A, so right back at the start. And I remember actually saying in that episode exactly that. We were going to do an episode in the future looking at this issue if you're, you know, constantly underfueling your training and by a long way, what, what you know, mm. what the potential negative consequences of that are. So almost a year later, here we are. Yeah, we got there in the end. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. All right. Let's well, do it. Yeah, let's get into it. 
All right. Hello, Margot, and welcome to the Long Munch. Hi, Steph. Thanks for having me. Very welcome. Very welcome. Um, so you're now back in Melbourne, having spent a few years up in um, Canberra doing your PhD with the Uni of, of Canberra and the AIS. How was that experience? And um, tell us, is it good to be home um, even though we've probably had one of the, I think, toughest lockdowns um, in Melbourne? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I know, poor timing from me. But um, <laughs> no, um, Canberra was great. It was a really good opportunity. Um, it's just such a rare place to work, I think, the AIS. It's, um, you know, it's full of opportunities. It's full of people from all different disciplines um, and they have such experience and they're all there and they're just willing to share it all with you um, and really take them, take you under their wing. Um, so, yeah, I've really enjoyed being in Canberra. Definitely miss it, um, not just the work but also living in Canberra. It's a very different lifestyle to Melbourne. <laughs> it's much uh, slower pace and, you know, you sort of go out and you know everyone because it's such a small place. So, yeah, definitely miss it um, but it's good to be back because, yeah, definitely old friends and immediate family and, and everything is in Melbourne. So, yeah, that's been really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and prior to that, you did your dietetic training at Monash University, where both um, Alan and I are now. Um, was the intention always to get into the sports area of, of dietetics? Yeah, it definitely was. Um, I've always been interested in sport as a kid growing up basically um and I actually started off doing exercise and sports science but I felt that there wasn't enough nutrition (laughs) covered in that course so I transferred to Monash and did undergraduate there and then uh, went into honours at Monash as well and that was in sports nutrition so as soon as I could basically I was trying to specialize um in that area and and yet um finished honours and there was an opportunity to work at AIS um, as sort of a research assistant, um, postgraduate scholar was the position. And, um, yeah, I, I thought, yeah, I'll throw my hat in the ring, thinking, oh, I probably won't get it. <laughs> and then when I did, I thought, right, I'm moving to Canberra. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, and then from there um, worked with a lot of different people and learnt a lot of different skills um, and then the PhD project that I took up was actually advertised um, and, yeah, I felt like I could I could answer that question. It was a much broader question on injury and illness prevention but I felt like I could really answer it from a nutrition and dietetics point of view and so I applied for that and then here we are today, <laughs> still going. <laughs> nearly. You're nearly finishing. Yeah, yep, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and do you, did you have a background in a particular sport yourself? So I was very much a recreational athlete, definitely yeah. didn't um, get to any high levels in sports, but loved gymnastics, um, loved diving, but also mm. just all through school, any team sports, happy to have a go. Um, yeah, anything really, any movement was exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so your PhD is in the area that we're, we're talking about today, um, so fueling adequately for your training load, um, and in your case, the prevention of injury and illness in elite female athletes. 
So can you tell us, first of all, what triggered your interest in this particular area? Yeah, so it was definitely, uh, it definitely stemmed from my work at AIS before I started the PhD. Um, I mean, obviously being female, I've always been interested in female athletes. Mm. Um, But when I was working, I was helping with a lot of applied research at the AIS lab um, and learning how to do specific tests um, that were really looking at assessing energy availability status. Um, And then seeing how the senior sports dietitians applied those tests and um, worked with their athletes to improve their health and performance ultimately um, was really inspiring and and I just found it really interesting. Um, it was definitely something that I didn't know before I started that position. I didn't know a lot about energy availability and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it was it was just something that kind of happened and conveniently sparked my interest <laughs> and get me going yeah 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 um and so our topic today is can I underfuel my training um so I guess from a under under fuel is quite a relative term depending on how much we're fueling um and also how much we're training so how do we conceptualize this from a, a scientific perspective Yeah, so there are probably two concepts to understand um, when we're talking about fueling and and those two concepts are energy balance and energy availability. So energy balance refers to really the total balance between all of the energy intake, so anything that you consume, your food, um, and any form of energy expenditure. So it could be exercise energy expenditure um, or it could just be your body maintaining Um, normal functioning essentially whereas energy availability is really focused on the balance between the energy intake from food um, with specific focus on exercise energy expenditure so um, yeah you're right it is a relative term um, and you can be um, well yeah I mean I guess (laughs) I'll just leave it at that really (laughs) I guess we'll get into it later (laughs) yeah So that availability term, I guess the difference between balance and availability, as you said, you know, balance has all the ins and all the outs, so it's essentially the balance of the two, but the availability term, I guess, refers to the bit of the energy intake that's left over or available for all those kind of normal functions after you take off the exercise. Component. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so when we talk about energy availability, if if that energy isn't sufficient, um, then you can see energy being conserved by the body and that might be um, by losing fat, body fat um, or changes in body composition or it could be um, less obvious and it could be conservation of metabolic processes that the body sort of doesn't deem as being essential at that point in time if there's not enough energy for it. Um, So essentially your body will always fuel the exercise that you're doing um, but it may come at a cost of other things. Mm, Yep. And so that's when we, you know, potentially or when the athlete potentially gets into that state of what we'd refer to as low energy availability. Um, is there, yeah, can you, can you explain, I guess, um, what the consequences are of low energy availability? So you mentioned, um, you know, like, yes, the athlete potentially could lose body fat or at least initially, um, which they might initially be like, oh, this is great, 
Um, but then down the track, then it could get a bit more into the negative consequences. Yeah, definitely. So often um, when athletes do see that change in body composition and they may see see some improvements um, in their performance, but they're almost always short-lived and they're often then superseded by these detrimental health health outcomes. Um, so these could be things like recurrent illness or um, bone stress injuries. Um, in females, it might be the loss of um, their menstrual cycle. So they're signs that there's not enough energy for both the exercise and the body to function optimally. Um, but they do, yeah, they do take a little bit of time to emerge. So they're not immediate effects. Mm. Yep. And um, some of our listeners might know um, what we used to perhaps refer to as the female athlete triad, um, but some of them may not be as familiar with, um, I'd say, a bit more of a kind of a newer term, which is called um, red S. Are you able to explain um, that to our listeners and then how that kind of links in with low energy availability? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the female athlete triad, as you can probably assume from the name, is very specific to females. Mm. Um, So there are two models, um, the female athlete triad model and the red S model, uh, two models that describe the relationship between low energy availability um, and the health outcomes that we've started to understand are associated with that. Mm -hmm. Um, So with the female athlete triad, it's not necessarily an outdated term, but it seems to sort of come into the umbrella term of red S. So um, that is, red S is relative energy deficiency in sport um, and it's a syndrome. So it incorporates the female athlete triad and also describes um, other detrimental health outcomes to a variety of body systems. So female athlete triad talks about low energy availability, it talks about bone health and it talks about menstrual function. They're the three elements. Um, and then red S describes a much, much broader um, detrimental effects to body systems and it's also not specific to females. So um, it can be applied to males or females. Um, but it does include the, um, the female athlete triad within it. Um, so it's not that red S replaces the triad, it's just that it um, extends the um, description of low energy availability and the outcomes that we're starting to see in athletes. And the group that um, came up with female athlete triad as a term, I think, have just recognised male athlete triad as a term as well, haven't they? And just in the last month, yeah, or so. that's right. Yeah, so there has been the introduction of the male athlete triad, um, which is similar to the female athlete triad um but obviously it's specific to males um and yeah that is definitely an emerging area um as well that links in low energy availability with specific um detrimental health health outcomes in males yeah and so is that kind of talking then for the male athlete triad is that like testosterone levels and um uh low energy availability um yeah Yep. Yeah, that's right. And bone health. Yeah. Bone health. Yeah. Yeah. So male sex hormones essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so do we know how common 
Red S is in, um, I guess our listeners are mainly kind of runners, cyclists and, and triathletes in, in endurance kind of sport. Do we know how common Red S is in, um, in these sports? Yeah, so it's hard to put a definite number of on that um, prevalence, but conveniently um, a lot of the research is actually done in endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. So we do have almost a better understanding in, in that athlete group. Um, but, yeah, different studies report numbers anywhere from 20 to 60% of athletes mm-hmm. can be affected um, by any of these outcomes. So it varies, but um, it appears to be fairly common. Um, and it's definitely not, as, as we sort of alluded to before when we were talking about the two models, it's no longer really considered a female-specific issue. It can affect females and males. Um, it can affect younger athletes who might not have the right um, support personnel around them and might be focusing, really focusing hard on performance um, now rather than long-term health. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, definitely athletes in sports with very high energy expenditure. So, for example, endurance athletes, they're at an increased risk. Um, athletes in aesthetic sports or sports that, where they're judged, so things like gymnastics or um, artistic swimming or even weight categorised sports, they seem to be at a bit more of an increased risk. Um, but really no athlete is immune mm. um, because there are so many contributing factors to the exposure of low energy availability in those athletes. Mm. Yep, yep. And um, para-athletes as well, um, right, because, you know, and they're const- they can constantly be trying to monitor their um, body composition and, um, they can potentially fall into into red S too. Yeah, that's right. And we're starting to see um, a, a few more research studies coming out um, focusing on para-athletes, which is really good because, mm. yeah, we really need to understand exactly. um, that risk in, in all athletes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess before we get um, stuck into it in a bit more detail, if we just go back to low energy availability, um, how can we kind of measure or screen for low energy availability um, or is that even possible? Yeah, good question. So you can measure low energy availability so you can directly quantify it um, but it's time consuming and relies heavily on on lab testing undertaken by trained individuals, um, trained scientists essentially. Mm. So it is the only definitive way of knowing whether or not you're in a state of low energy availability um, but it's not always accessible, um, especially not, you know, it's not always accessible to high-level athletes, let alone recreational athletes. Mm. Um, but screening is also possible. Um, so there are various tools that you can use. So one of them is um, the Low Energy Availability in Females questionnaire, which obviously is a female-specific questionnaire. Just given the history of the condition, it's um yeah, we're yet to have a male-specific one or one that can be used generally across both sexes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other methods which include clinical investigations, I suppose you could say, so just looking at physiological symptoms and biomarkers, so a blood test for iron deficiency, um, bone mineral density scans that can give an indication of the bigger picture of athlete health um, and start that sort of invest- investigation down the path of low energy availability or energy availability status. Um, 
but yeah, it's not the easiest thing to do and it's not always um, very accessible for all athletes. Mm, yeah. And I guess if someone's trying to do that at home themselves in terms of manage, measuring the energy intake and the exercise energy expenditure, um, I, I guess one of the things that we know is that, you know, trying to capture accurate energy intake data, like how many kilojoules or calories you're eating is very difficult to get that with any level of, of accuracy and the same you know, apart from maybe the exception of cycling with power meters in other sports capturing that energy expenditure from exercise is incredibly difficult as yeah well. that's right I mean we can we can get numbers for all of those things but yeah the accuracy of them um, needs to be considered when you're interpreting it definitely mm. yeah yeah. Um, and so some of the other things you were talking about there, I guess, gets into the various aspects of that that um, REDS model. So, and that that's probably a nice segue because what we're going to talk about next is, I guess, what all of those things are. So as you said before, like the, the female athlete triad was really the triad. So there's only three things in it. Uh, low energy availability is kind of the cause. And then those two other things in terms of menstrual function and, and bone health as the consequence. Um, so the REDS model has sort of low energy availability still at the core, but a whole bunch of different things um, that, that shoot off from that. And in fact, if you go to the the, um, the publication that sort of introduced this model, there's in fact two different diagrams. One is all the health consequences and a second one is the performance consequences. So maybe we'll start off with the health side of things. Do you want to tell us a bit about what all those different things are? And I guess that sort of comes back to those clinical assessments you were talking about as how you might look for someone being in low energy availability because of all of these different consequences. Yeah, that's right. So um, the, the red S syndrome um, describes consequences to I think it's about 10 body systems um, so obviously that includes uh, reproductive function um, so in females this would be um, changes to their menstrual cycles so um, in extreme cases losing their uh, menstrual cycle altogether um, and then there's also bone health so impaired bone health um, and this can lead to the clinical endpoint of osteoporosis um, if it's left un, unmanaged for long enough. Um, and then we also see some changes in, in hormones. Um, metabolic rate seems to be suppressed. Um, iron deficiency is also commonly seen um, in athletes with low energy availability. In younger athletes, it can affect their growth and development. Um, and when we talk about low energy availability, we're not necessarily talking about eating disorders, um, but eating disorders and disordered eating can be part of the um, symptomology or can precede the low energy availability. So there's definitely a psychological um, uh, component to it that can be present. It's not always present though. Um, sometimes it can be inadvertent underfueling, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, and then there is some emerging research around cardiovascular function and interestingly um, having an unfavorable lipid profile, so actually having things like high cholesterol, um, which a lot of people wouldn't typically expect um, in athletes. Then also um, gastrointestinal function can be affected, so you can have some symptoms either during exercise or, or even um, independent from exercise. Um, and your immune system may be compromised as well. So this might show through as recurrent illness or, um, yeah, not really being able to recover from something as quickly as you would expect to um, from an illness point of view. So those are the, yep. 
sort of the key um, health outcomes and then the performance um, or health consequences and then the performance consequences um, can range from decreased training adaptations to lack of concentration or impaired judgment um, and these can also contribute to increased risk of illness, um, injury sorry, mm-hmm. um, from those. And then, again, talking about the um, potential psychological component, so it can be related to depression, um, irritability, and, yeah, overall reduced performance. And especially considering some of those um, health consequences can result in missed training, so inability to complete planned training, um, and they'll all have an impact on your performance ultimately. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So there's quite a lot sort of to unpack there. Um, And we might talk a little bit about your research in a sec, but I'm just curious because you mentioned that when you sort of started working at the IAS before you started the PhD, you sort of came across energy availability working with athletes in different sports. Of all of those things that you just mentioned, were there ones that sort of came up more often than not in terms of, you know, the issues that athletes were kind of presenting with that then sparked that series of investigations to go, oh, hang on, I think this might be low energy availability, sort of underfueling that's causing this? Yeah, I think probably the key ones would be um, concerns from the athlete um, about menstrual function or concerns from either the um, sports doctor that they were seeing or someone else who had asked a question about, you know, when was their last period or do you have regular periods? Um, And if the athlete sort of said, oh, I can't remember or no, I don't have regular periods, that sort of is a bit of a red flag. Um, Mm. That in addition to um, recurrent uh, injuries, definitely bone injuries, bone stress injuries, they're two quite obvious flags um and i think that 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 feeds back to that triad relationship the female athlete triad because those are the two endpoints that have been um you know uh related causally to low energy availability but then there were other things as well that um you that you would see um so there's definitely not sort of like Um, a stereotypical presentation and it's definitely not necessarily always to a sports dietitian um, or even to the sports doctor like it might be the physios pick up that actually you've been injured a lot and they're all bone injuries you know have you got a regular period and then the athlete might say oh no how is that related because the athletes might not realize that there is that connection so um, yeah yes it's definitely not necessarily the athlete presenting with the concerns, it might just be something that someone has picked up along the way as well. And sometimes can mm. it also be kind of like I think Trent might have recently, Trent Stellingworth might have recently done a paper, uh, released a paper at the moment in terms of um, overtraining um, syndrome and um, and potentially uh, low energy availability or red S. Um, so it could it also then present like, um, you know, the coach is thinking or the athletes thinking oh maybe I've overtrained um and and maybe that's another sign as well that it's perhaps it's um low energy availability yeah that's right yeah that was a really interesting paper and um definitely um a good insight into the overlap between low energy availability and overtraining um so yeah it can it can come from a variety of concerns or um complaints even from the athletes that yeah, there's no one typical presentation, mm. that's for sure. 
Mm. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I remember when that paper came out, I'm like, he was reading my mind. That's the, the question I've been asking for about yeah. eight years or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, Steph, what about you? Like with the runners that you obviously work with, um, not all, a variety of athletes, but a lot of runners, do you see a, a typical pattern of presentation with this? Is it more the performance side of things? Like people are just saying, like, I'm just not recovering well and I'm just fatigued all the time? Or is it, again, like Margot, a bit of everything? Um, yeah, I, I think it, it, it would be a bit of everything, but I commonly I do tend to see more like um, stress fractures kind of presenting um, and, yeah, constant like um, just injuries. Um yeah, um, that's probably yeah what I tend to see probably more so from a road runners um, uh, right now. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I guess with cyclists, maybe you see more of the fatigue mm. side of it or the illness side mm. of it. You know, I'm always sick, always you know through winter, always got a cold or something like that, or you know getting glandular fever, that mm. kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yep. Okay. Cool. And, and I, we were talking off air before this um, that you've done some research as part of your PhD, Margot, looking, I guess, at how um, how common all of those different uh, consequences are within an athlete group. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that research, You know what you did and, and what you found from that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is the first study that we did um, as part of my PhD. Um, and we we set out to quantify low energy availability or to quantify energy availability um, in our cohort of athletes. So we recruited 112 athletes um, and we were very optimistic that we could have accurate um, dietary intake logs <laughs> and accurate energy expenditure logs um, to be able to actually do the mathematical calculation for energy availability um, but we couldn't <laughs> for a variety of reasons. I was going to say that's very obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's hard work. It's hard work for the athletes participating and it's hard work for the researchers as well. So, um, But we also, within that, we also wanted to use some of the clinical markers that I was talking about before, um, which can indicate the presence of low energy availability. Um, but it's, it's important to note that just because, say, an athlete had low, uh, low iron, and iron deficiency um, didn't actually mean that they necessarily had low energy availability. It's just that they had a symptom that is described by the REDS model. Um, and so we used a series of uh, clinical biomarkers and tried to assess all of those body symptoms, oh, sorry, body systems that are described within that REDS model. Um, to see what the prevalence was like in our cohort. So we recruited female athletes only. Um, and we found that almost all of them had at least one symptom um, that could be suggestive of low energy availability. Uh, the most common ones were um, immune, immune symptoms, so um, reporting to have missed training because of illness, any kind of illness. Um, we also had a lot of low iron levels within our athletes um, and a lot of them reporting gastrointestinal symptoms or even um, potentially mistraining because of gastrointestinal symptoms. We also found that a third of them had a diagnosed mental illness. So one of the components that we did were um, structured clinical interviews. So one third of the athletes who participated in that um, 
actually had a diagnosed mental illness, which was, wow. um, yeah, really surprising and quite alarming as well. Mm. Um, and these were elite level athletes? Yeah, that's right. So there were state, national and international level athletes um, from a variety of sports. So we were trying to um, extend those investigations that are typically undertaken in endurance athletes. Um, we did include some endurance athletes within there. So um, we had triathlon or triathletes. Um, but we also had team sports like water polo, basketball, netball. Um, we had weight categorized sports like boxing, weightlifting. Um, so, yeah, we were trying to have a diverse cohort to to assess just general prevalence, I guess, across the Australian female athletes. Mm. And was there a control group in that that had normal energy availability to see whether, you know, the iron deficiency was more common if you had low energy availability compared to normal energy availability? No, so there wasn't a control group per se, um, but we did, yeah, we did look at um, surrogate markers of low energy availability. So these were like assessing the resting metabolic rate. Um, mm. And we found that um, the metabolic symptoms of low energy availability, the prevalence of those were quite was quite low. Um, yeah. So even though we did have high um, uh, prevalence of iron deficiency, they probably weren't all related to low energy availability. Mm, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was thinking. And the same with illness potentially as well. Mm. What okay. was that, sorry? Oh, and, and the same with illness potentially as well. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, and so in terms of either through your research or, or through practice or, or just you know talking to, to other people working in the field, what are some of the more extreme outcomes that you've sort of heard of or, or seen in, in your time? Yeah, so I think um, a lot of a lot of athletes are starting to come forward and talk about their experiences at elite levels, um, which I think is really important because there are a lot of um, potential issues that have come up, um, and these are things that need to be talked about. And so, um, definitely, eating disorders is something that has been recently. Um, you know, in the news and brought up by athletes. And, and yeah, I've definitely heard of athletes at 18 years old being diagnosed with osteoporosis mm. and it can essentially be put down to the fact that they were under-fueling for X number of years and it was just undetected. Mm. Um, other athletes told that they wouldn't be able to have children um, because of the effect on their reproductive system essentially. Mm. Um, and it's quite common to see cyclists with osteoporosis as well they're not necessarily right down at 18 years old but um but yeah to think that someone who you know most people would see as being fit and healthy and and ideal um could actually have this diagnosed disease that um once you get to that those points it's very hard to come back from um mm. and repair that damage so yeah they're very real clinically diagnosed diseases that have long-term implications on health far beyond mm. their performance at the next race or competition. Yeah, absolutely. And so the fertility side of things, is that irreversible? Um, so I haven't actually looked into it uh, like it's a bit beyond my research area. Mm. Um, I don't understand that it would be in all cases, um, mm. maybe in some extreme cases, but I think typically... That's something that um, can return sometimes quite quickly when once 
an issue has been detected um, and some treatment options or management options have been put into place, um, that's sometimes one of the first things that can come back and sort of encourage you on um, on the pathway to recovery, I guess. So, yeah. yeah, I don't think it's, from my understanding, it's not irreversible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Now, I think we've, we've sort of covered this a little bit already, but if there are people out there listening, athletes or, or maybe coaches, and they want to know whether they're in low energy availability, like they're not really sure they might have some of those you know, things that we've described in terms of low iron or gastrointestinal issues or they get ill frequently, that kind of thing, how would they go about trying to work out, okay, is this an energy availability issue or is it unrelated? Yeah, so I think um, that that is a good point and I think I said it before as well that these um, symptoms and markers and um, these signs, I suppose, they're not always a result of low energy availability they don't always mean that you've got red s um so it is important to work with um a doctor or a trusted health um healthcare provider to rule out any other more sinister health conditions um but definitely for female athletes um if they notice a change in their menstrual cycle um or for males if they notice um reduced sex drive then it could be something that might indicate that there's um an issue with their fueling um as we said before recurrent illness or injury um bone stress injuries and then also for potentially for people who might be supporting athletes um or who might just be close to the athletes so family and friends even um any signs of disordered eating so changes in um, body image or um, changes in dietary intake um, could be suggestive of some low energy availability Um, and also those behavioral symptoms as well so poor concentration and and feeling like you're maybe not um, having those training adaptations that you would expect um, could be a result of under fueling definitely so maybe just sort of putting those package of things together and if they're starting to add up that's potentially a bit of a concern or maybe even if you're just going through a really heavy training block or something like that and you're just not sure if you're you're fueling enough or you're struggling to get through the sessions yeah um maybe a sign that you're you're under fueling a bit can you also um is there any benefit because i know um it's being done is there benefit to um assessing the athlete's uh, resting metabolic rate? Yeah, there is. It can it can suggest um, low energy availability, but it is something that can be expensive. Um, so it can be um, an athlete can have limited access to it, I suppose. But um, And the other thing is that it, it is really sort of um, shows the current energy availability status. Mm. So you do need to take that into consideration in that, you know, um, a lot of the outcomes that we've talked about that the health consequences of low energy availability take a long time to uh, manifest and um, it takes a long period of exposure to low energy availability. Um, Measuring your RMR could say, you know, measuring your RMR today could say that, yeah, it is suppressed and you might have low energy availability. Measuring it tomorrow could say it's fine though. Um, just depending on what you did today and what you ate today and, and how you present to the test. Mm. So it's not necessarily, yeah, it's, it's not um, 
gold standard Diagnostic. or anything. Yeah, I yeah. guess, I guess it, mm-hmm. that makes sense, yeah. So it's, yeah. it's a bit fl- uh, fickle in terms of it reflects energy availability only over a really short period of time. You've got to catch it in the act kind of thing. Yeah, and I think I think it's definitely a useful measure, but I think um, you probably need to be collecting some other information as well about the athlete's health mm. in yep. order to see that big clinical picture. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing I tend to find is that you know, if someone's got to the point where they're seeking help, it's often because they've got sick or they've got injured or something like that, so they've stopped training. And so they had low energy availability, but by the time they come to do the RMR test to screen for it, they no longer have low energy availability yeah. because they've stopped training. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I mean, as long as the person who's conducting the test understands the limitations of the test, then, yeah, it's definitely a useful tool. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so going back to the question then, can an athlete underfuel their training? And I think it's pretty clear from this that the answer is yes. Uh, and it's more than just, you know, if I don't have enough carbohydrate during my session, I'm not going to complete the session. It's more, you know, something that can accumulate over, you know, days, weeks, months as well. Um, but presumably if that happens, you know, a few times, a, you know, a fortnight or a month or something like that, it's not going to have a huge impact on these consequences. Like that presumably has to be sort of prolonged to start to have that effect. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, a few days of low energy availability is not going to mean that you're diagnosed with osteoporosis. Mm. It's the chronic exposure um, that really increases your risks of these um, outcomes. Uh, and it's why a lot of people now are talking about periodizing body composition so essentially understanding that you're not at race weight all year, but you're targeting specific performances and working with the right support people to manipulate changes when and where appropriate um, for your body composition in order to enhance your performance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we talked a bit about that last week with um, Izzy Bat Doyle as well. Mm. Um, okay, so any tips or tricks for athletes to maybe protect themselves against falling into low energy availability? Any ways you can think about, um, I guess, how you would think about fueling or you know, even you know, whether the timing of when you eat during the day or, or across the week, is that something that's potentially helpful? Yeah, it is. So um, definitely being aware of periods where you're increasing your training and ensuring that you're increasing your intake appropriately. Um, even seeking out advice from a sports dietitian, even if it's just sort of one or two consults, just to get an understanding of how much you really need to be eating and what that actually looks like practically. Yep. Um, another thing is not necessarily relying on appetite cues to eat. Mm. Um, so there is some research that shows that exercise can actually suppress your appetite cues. And so you might find that, you know, you're not at all hungry and so you don't you don't eat, but actually you probably did need to eat <laughs> then. Um, and it's sort of like the opposite of athletes on a rest day where they're doing no exercise, but, you know, they might just be hungry all day and feel like they're eating all day. Um, that, yeah, those appetite cues, though, um, a lot of the time you can rely on them, but for exercise, it's it's really hard because they are affected by that exercise that you're doing. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And is there much, because um, we've sort of talked about low energy availability being something that sort of accumulates and we're kind of, I guess, defining it on a 24-hour cycle, I suppose, by looking at, you know, how many kilojoules or calories, um, you know, per day. Um, but does the time in the day when you eat them 
around exercise, does that matter? Yeah, there is some um, research that's starting to suggest that within day energy availability, so these are studies where athletes are recruited and um, their energy availability is assessed, is assessed every hour. Um, and it's looking like um, those who spend longer periods in energy deficit in the space of a day um, do have more of those clinical markers of metabolic disturbance, but it's definitely still an emerging area of research. Mm. So that would essentially be underfueling sort of immediately before, during and immediately after training. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and something I forgot to ask you before, and I'm assuming that there's probably not a good answer to this, but you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. We don't really know long, how long someone has to be in low energy availability before these consequences happen, do we? Because it's not like we track all these people just in case they get low energy availability. And then if they do, we see how long it takes. Uh, and you're not going to, obviously, it's not ethical to deliberately put people into low energy availability for long periods of time. Exactly. So presumably, we don't really know that time course. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the big um, big areas of research that, that's missing um, within this topic area, I guess, um, is that true understanding of if we look at those outcomes of diseases, that true understanding of how that plays out um, and whether there's a difference between between athletes of different sports, like whether whether there are differences or whether it's just this happens, this happens, this happens um, across everyone. But it's really hard to do those studies. They take a lot of time. Um, you can't actually ethically do them. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so that's definitely a big gap in the in the knowledge of this area. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess the flip side of that is how long, like if you um, increase the amount you're eating, how long does it take to recover and, and get out of that hole of low energy availability and start to see improvements yeah. uh, in terms of those outcomes. Do we know much about that? No, again, that's a, um, a bit of a, a gap in the, in the literature, I suppose. So um, it would depend on how, how long the athlete had been exposed to low energy availability and um, the types of consequences that they might be demonstrating um, and how far along that sort of clinical pathway they might be they'll all that will all feed into how long it will take to recover um Mm. but yeah there's no there's definitely not a sort of oh it's two weeks of rest and eating well and you'll be back on your feet kind of thing it's Mm. yeah it's a lot more um varied than that yeah and I guess because those consequences are so varied too right like you know something like immune function might recover you know re you know relatively speaking quickly whereas something like if you've got you know low bone density that could take years or possibly never recover as you said earlier yeah yeah that's yeah. right mm. okay um now i know there's also been some suggestion that that energy availability might actually not really be the issue it might be a proxy for carbohydrate availability um so it's actually the lack of carbs rather than the lack of calories driving uh some some of this where do we kind of stand on that at the moment? I know there's been a few papers that have kind of explored that. There was one published just this week, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, where are we at on that issue? Yeah, so I think the issues definitely overlap. Um, I know when I think about low energy availability, I'm thinking about the whole clinical picture, so not necessarily focusing on specific food groups or um, macronutrient availability. 
obviously in sports nutrition, most people recognize the importance of carbohydrate availability. Um, and hopefully, yeah, athletes are aware that sort of a, definitely a low-carb, high-fat diet um, does lead to impairments in performance in endurance athletes. Um, but also not only that, but you can have high carbohydrate availability but still have an energy deficit. So you could still be at risk of these outcomes described by these low energy availability models. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it probably sounds like there might be an effect of carbohydrate, but it might be a separate effect to the energy. So they're both relevant. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so for the listeners who may be concerned about low energy availability, either themselves in terms of their own running cycling triathlon, but maybe they're a coach or a concerned parent or someone who um, you know works with a, a training group or something like that, um, where can they go for more information? What are sort of the useful resources out there that you recommend people go check out? Yeah, so Sports Dietitians Australia has a really good website. They've got... Um, a magazine that's aimed at athletes that has lots of um, different information within there. Um, but then they also have fact sheets, they have coaches' toolkits, um, and there's also obviously the ability on the website to find an accredited sports dietitian. So if you're not already working with a sports dietitian but you do have some concerns after listening to this, then um, that's definitely a good place to start. Um, the other thing is for female athletes, the AIS has recently um started the female performance and health initiative and there's a lot of information there about female specific health and performance um, resources and and things that cover low energy availability as well so that's another um, really useful resource that's quite new and and is being added to all the time definitely Mm. and is that only for elite athletes or AIS scholarship holders or is that for anyone uh no so i'm the website is just for the general public um Mm -hmm. But yeah, it can be applied to recreational through to elite athletes. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, well, I'm going to hand over to Steph now, and she's going to finish us off with our bonus round. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get started. Um, so, Margot, if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, um, I reckon I know what it's going to be. Um, what would it be? Oh, interesting that you reckon you know what it's going to be. I think I'm going to throw a spanner in the works here. <laughs> I thought long and hard about this. I had other, you know, options that I thought, oh, maybe I should have done this at uni or this at uni. Um, but I think either <laughs> a beauty editor, so I get lots of free products and I can write about them, <laughs> or some sort of like beautician or someone. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's very random, but those are always things that I thought, oh, you know, like I spent all this time at uni, but I could have just done this. <laughs> so, what so were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, Steph, what did you have? Well, I don't know if this can go online, so maybe Alan can edit it out, but you're <laughs> going to be a mum soon, aren't you? <laughs> I'm actually already a mum. This is baby oh. number two. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why it was like, if I could do anything besides what I'm doing now, yeah, yeah. I'm already doing that juggle. <laughs> Got it. See, I'm yep. just a bit too slow. <laughs> <laughs> no, good. <laughs> um, all right. So one thing on your bucket list that you're yet to do. Yeah. So I've always thought that it would be 
incredible. Not that I speak Italian, but I think it would be incredible to do something like a six-month farm stay in somewhere like Tuscany where there are just no responsibilities. You're just living the life in regional Italy and enjoying the food and, and everything like that. So that's something that uh, post-COVID and maybe <laughs> when the babies are a bit older <laughs> that I can do. <laughs> something down the track. Yep. Yep, yep. Um, and what about a, a sport um, that you, you've you always thought, hey, that looks cool, but yet you haven't actually tried it? Um, definitely trampolining. So oh. <laughs> I said earlier that I did gymnastics when I was younger, but definitely recreational level. I mean, we went on the trampolines there and, and flipped around and everything and had a trampoline at home. But that Olympic trampolining just looks like so much fun and I would love to give it a try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, and something you cannot live without. <laughs> so this is very uh, quintessentially Melbourne, but definitely coffee. <laughs> More specifically, my coffee machine um, and my barista, also known as my husband. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely need one every single day. <laughs> and is that something you travel with too, Margot? Like do you take a, um, what do you call the? the like an AeroPress or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not that extreme, but it's definitely yeah. something that I, I consider in my travels I think how am I going to have a coffee yeah <laughs> where yep. am I going to go usually I'll yes. go to a cafe but um but yeah I'm sort of probably more like a okay if there's no no other option then it's instant but yep. preferably a cafe yeah <laughs> Steph I think we're gonna have to take that question out because the answer is the same for everyone it's we speak always, to is it <laughs> it's always yeah, the same yeah, particularly yeah the I athletes. thought it wouldn't be very yeah. creative <laughs> um and do you live by any piece of advice or a particular motto that you go by? Yeah, so someone once said to me, make a decision, then make it the right one. Mm. And that's something that has always stuck with me and helps me to make decisions because I just think, okay, well, I've got to make a decision um, and this is what I'm going to do and I'm just going to make it work. So mm. that's definitely something that's stuck with me. That's a good one. Mm. <laughs> I like that. I know too many indecisive people. <laughs> yeah. And um, another final one, um, just uh, what would you, as a, as a um, working in this field, what's a, um, a message that you perhaps want to, yeah, get out to, um, to athletes, um, yeah, in terms of the energy availability, any, any particular message? That's a good question. I think understanding and knowing your own body and not being worried or not being, you know, not embarrassed but sort of um, hesitant, I suppose, to to go and seek help for something that you might have noticed that you might think, oh, it's probably nothing but it's it's always worth going and talking to someone. If, if you've noticed it, you know your body the best. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely go and talk to someone about it and and if it is nothing then great you've um you know you haven't wasted anyone's time yeah. um but if but if it is something then you can start correcting it or um yeah overcoming it yep yeah good mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. yeah awesome okay well thank you so much for your time Margo. it's been great to to talk about that and i think a really nice follow-on from our last two conversations with gary slater and, and easy mm-hmm. bat doyle so thanks so much for your time uh, good luck. When's when's baby number two due? January. January. 
uh, yeah. right in the heat oh, of wow. summer. Oh, wow, everything's due January. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why the thesis is due January. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. self-imposed deadline. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Awesome. We'll just hope that baby doesn't come early. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, awesome. All right, well, thank you so much, Margot. And, uh, yeah, you. best of luck finishing off the thesis and, more importantly, with, uh, with Bubs number two. Thanks, guys, and thanks for having me on. It was great. That was um, great and um, a really relevant um, topic topic for our listeners. Um, and I reckon I'm going to hand it over to our um, designator summariser, I reckon. Um, Alan, can you um, just, I guess, give some key points um, on this chat that we've had and, and take-home messages for our listeners? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as you said, you know, great chat with Margot and I think the perfect follow-up to our last topic where we asked, you know, does Lena equal faster? Um, and then the issue that, you know, Gary Slater mentioned there and, and Izzy kind of talked about as well was the fact that, you know, well, you know, in some cases Lena might equal faster, but you've got to think about the process of getting Lena and that is, you know, the underfueling aspect and if you're doing that around training, then that can become really problematic. And obviously Margot mm -hmm. talked through, I guess the different aspects of that relative energy deficiency and sport model or red s or reds depending on uh how you like to sort of pronounce the acronym um but yeah there's obviously that the health implications and the performance implications um and essentially you know from a health point of view when we don't have enough energy so that's the energy availability so we don't eat enough to cover both the energy that we're burning during exercise and then having enough available or left over to adequately fuel all our normal body functions, um, the body's going to start to conserve some of those body functions. And not surprisingly, it's going to conserve the ones that aren't required to stay alive. So it's not going to stop you breathing or stop your heart beating or anything like that, or your kidneys or liver working. But what it is going to do is um, turn down some of the hormones involved in reproduction because, you know, makes sense from an evolutionary point of view if you're in the savannah in africa and there's not much food around it's not really the best time to conceive and have children uh, it's not the safest mm. environment for that to occur so you know not surprisingly um it'll it'll turn down those kinds of um functions and so that's what you see you see a, a reduction in the the reproductive hormones so in men testosterone and in in women um, estrogen amongst others um, and then like all hormones in the body, you know, these things don't just have one effect in one organ to do one thing. Mm. Hormones have a multiple effects in multiple organ systems throughout the body. And so what you see is that it's not only a, um, a shutting down in reproductive function. So in, in women, you know, a drop in um, uh, menstrual cycle function or complete amenorrhea, so a lack of a menstrual cycle completely. And for, for men, it's more just uh, reduced libido, I suppose you'd call it. Um, but then the flow-on effects are to other body systems. So you see that impacting on bone health as well because those reproductive hormones also impact on you know, our, our turnover of bone. And so you can see reduced bone density and increased risk of um, stress fractures, particularly in runners, um, and osteopenia or, or osteoporosis uh, if it goes on long enough and is severe enough as well uh, yeah. and there are examples sadly of people being diagnosed with osteoporosis you know in, as, as early as their teens and 20s um, but there are other uh, body systems that are affected things like the gastrointestinal system may be negatively impacted and increasing the amount of sort of 
um, un unwanted gastrointestinal symptoms. You can have things like iron deficiency. You can have things like um, immune system factors. So you're more likely to get sick more often or more severely. Um, so that can be an issue sometimes as well. Um, and then you've got all the, uh, and then psychologically as well. So mental health is, is a big one. Um, one thing we didn't really talk about with Margot is that when you look graphically at the REDS model, it has energy availability in the middle and all these things coming out to the sides, like a hub and spoke kind of system. And there's arrows pointing outwards to all of these outcomes. Um, but when you look at mental health, um, you actually see a, a two-directional arrow. It's the only mm. two-directional arrow in the model, and that's basically indicative of the fact that you know poor mental health can lead to low energy availability. So if you've got disordered eating or an eating disorder or even anxiety and depression in the way that it might negatively affect your, your appetite or your motivation to, to eat for your training load, then that can cause low energy availability. But low energy availability in of itself can actually increase the risk of um, poor mental health as well. So we need to look at at, at both directions there. And then finally, on the performance side of things, um, I guess the things that you typically see is either um, poor performance in training and competition or poor recovery uh, and, and losing that ability to adapt and improve as a result of training because we're not fueling that recovery adequately. Um, uh, probably the main ones, maybe an increased risk of, of injury as well. So um, yeah, obviously not great things that we wanna see um, due to, to, due to that low energy availability. So I guess, yeah, what do we do about that? Obviously we, we try and make sure we eat enough and, and fuel our training well. We touched briefly on, you know, day-to-day -day energy availability, whether the timing of calories in the day matters. And I think the jury's still out a little bit on that, but there is some evidence that that might be important to get the calories around the time that you're actually training. Um, and then sort of carbohydrate availability, whether that's you know, is, is energy availability really just a proxy for carbohydrate? Is carbohydrate a proxy for energy or are they two completely separate things? And it's probably fair to say it's too early to tell with that yet. There hasn't been enough research on that, uh, but there is some suggestion that carbohydrate may have an independent effect of just the calories from a fueling perspective. Yep, yep. Yeah, so um, really important to, I think, uh, a key message there is... Um, because often we can get a bit stuck into um, just our, our training and food will just take care of itself. Um, and then when we have heavy training, like then more things go out the window because we're just focused on getting those sessions done. So uh, food's just, yep, okay, if I can grab something, I'll just grab it here or there. Um, and so hopefully um, this is a message to say, well, hey, maybe that's not um, so smart to do. And um, you should really think about your nutrition for supporting um, your your training and your performance and to help you get through because otherwise, um, sure, you might get away with it for a little bit, but then down the track, that may be when you see um, these other things creeping in, like maybe you're starting to get injuries, you're feeling run down, you know, oh, stressies just come on board. Well, why is that? Um, yeah, um, so you're much better to look at it now to help prevent um, that from happening and, and manage it before it becomes um, uh, bigger than it, you know, should. Yeah, and as you said, like that underfueling in some cases is in intentional, like someone's deliberately trying to lose weight or they have, you know, disordered eating or an eating disorder. But in some cases it can be completely unintentional. Like they're just up their training volume exactly. and their appetite yeah. hasn't come along for the ride or lags behind and so they're not 
increasing what they're eating to to sort of fit in with that extra training volume. And so sometimes it does take a deliberate and conscious or planned increase in in what you're eating to to fit with that extra training because the appetite may take a bit of time to catch up. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, great summary. Um, So just uh, socials. Uh, So if anyone's got any questions um, or any feedback, please um, send that through to us on either our Facebook, um, Instagram or um, Twitter uh, accounts and you can listen to us on all your popular um, platforms, podcast platforms. Um, and the next episode that we have coming up is now 24B, so that's the um, part with a, an athlete and um, Alan, we actually may have two athletes um, for this one, so we're pretty lucky. Um, and I think it is it is great to do to get different perspectives um, uh, from these athletes. So um, next one is can I underfuel my training? So same topic, um, but we have that have an athlete, Kate Perry, Alan. Yeah, so Kate's a, a cyclist here in Australia. Uh, anyone who follows this kind of the domestic um, elite racing scene, so the National Road Series here in Australia, would know Kate uh, or know of Kate because she's been around that scene for uh, or five to eight years, I suppose, something like that now. Um, and she's often seen mixing it up with the overseas pros that come back from Europe in the, the national titles um, over in, in January in Buninyong. Uh, and she's recently sort of transitioned out of riding for an NRS team and into a, a high-performance manager role with, um, with one of the NRS teams. I think she's still riding herself, but um, not, not competing at that NRS level for a team anymore. But, um, yeah, she's uh, had quite the journey with uh, exactly what we're talking about here, you know, underfueling training and what the consequences of that are, but also what happens when you turn that around. Um, and improve the fueling and improve that energy availability. So she's going to be able to give us a, a really great um, insight into to what that looks and feels like. Yeah, that's good. And then be able to sort of give us a bit of an insight of what she sees as a um, in that high performance role as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yep. Awesome. Looking forward to that one. Well, we will let our lovely listeners go. Thank you for listening. And um, we will see you in the next episode. Yep. See everyone next week.